My name is Mitch. I am, uh, yeah, a friend of the church. It's happy to, I'm just happy to be here, happy to be able to share uh, the Word of God with y'all this morning. Um, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12, running through verse 18 this morning. Verse 18, 12 through 18 of Philippians chapter 2 That's what we're going to cover. Um, we're going to talk about uh, working out our salvation for God's good pleasure. That's sort of the premise today. And what we're going to tackle is uh, this tiny topic called sanctification and how that whole operation works. So here's, here's the deal. I'm going to read the text, I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in. I have five small points today, five points today. Um, James asked me to cut two of those points because he says he has somewhere to be, but um, I think I'll just, I'll just shorten them up a little bit, you know, just for the sake of the body of Christ. Holding somebody else higher than myself. That's what I'm doing right now. All right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and read the text, and then we'll pray, and we'll dive in. All right, Philippians chapter 2, starting verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we love you and we thank you and we praise you, God. We thank you that you are an amazing, amazing God. God, we pray that you would be with us as we study your word. God, as we, um, as we spend time digging into what it means to follow you. So we spend time digging into what it means uh, that we are loved by you, that we're, we're empowered by you, God, that you make us um, able to follow you well. God, I pray that you would help us uh, understand what it means for us to follow you. And God, I pray that you would help uh, me communicate well what your word says this morning. We love you, God. We thank you and we praise you. We ask these things in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. All right, so verses 12 through 18 of chapter 2 of Philippians. This is the concluding section of a larger section that started in verse 27 of chapter 1. So Paul kind of has this little arc that he's, that he's starting, that he's following from verse 27 of chapter 1 all the way until verse 18 of chapter 2. And this arc starts with the, the charge to walk as citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He sets that identity out for us in verse 27 of chapter one. And then he starts working his way through up until this point of what that sort of means and what that looks like. So in verse 27, 28 and 29, he talks about being uh, standing firm in one spirit. He talks about in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened by our opponents and that our salvation comes from God alone. 
And then he talks about the suffering that comes with that. And then verses, 12, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, Paul takes that idea of unity. He takes that idea of striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He takes that idea of being in one mind and of one heart and of one accord. And he brings it into what he, he starts bringing into what Christ has done. So we can see in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that he's calling us the, again to be of the same mind, having the same love, being a full of cord and one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves, not looking only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. So Paul starts to talk through, okay, we need to be unified. Okay, here's kind of how that works. Because we're citizens of the gospel, we need to be of, of one mind. And we also need to hold others higher than ourselves. But Paul doesn't just stop right there. He actually appeals to something greater in verses 5 through 11. Paul points to Christ's model and what Christ has done for us as as kind of the foundation, I suppose, of our citizenship. So in verses 5 through 11, he talks about having that God, who being in the form of God, he didn't account equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being in the likeness of men. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we can live. So then after Paul paints that picture of the, the amazing grace that God has given us, and really just the audacity of God himself setting aside his rights and his privileges so that other people can live, he goes on, to sort of land the plane in this section in verses 12 through 18. So five through 11 is sort of the center point. It's kind of the hinge point. So like you go, if it's it's one of those bell curves, like you go up and this is kind of the top and then he starts tapering it back off on the back end here with 12 through 18. So what Paul is really doing is he's taking that idea of citizenship that we saw in verse 27 of chapter one. He's saying, because you are citizens of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is how you ought to live. This is what you ought to do because of who you are. So what we're going to talk about today in verses 12 through 18 is we're going to talk about this topic called sanctification. So if, you don't, if you're not familiar with that word, it's simply a word that describes the, the Christian growth process. It's us becoming more like Jesus. So Christian growth and sanctification are synonymous. We're becoming more like Jesus, and and Jesus is invested in that process. He wants us to become more like him, and we're going to learn, excuse me, we're going to learn a little bit more about that today. So I have five observations, five observations about Christ's sanctifying work in our lives and in our hearts from this section. The first observation that we have is sanctification begins and ends with God. The first thing is sanctification, Christian, the Christian growth process, us becoming more like Jesus, begins with God and it ends with God. It always starts and ends with God. Let's read 12 through 13 together. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we can see that in verses 12 and 13, they're transitioning us out of the section of Christ's amazing work on the cross, Christ's amazing humility, and also his exaltation, where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is wrapping this up, and he goes into it, and he starts this next section 
by saying, therefore. Now, whenever we see the word therefore, we need to ask ourselves, what's it there for? Like, it's, it sounds cheesy, but it's a really easy way of, rem- of remembering. When you see the word therefore, it's connecting something that's happening previous to something that's happening in the future. It's a hinge point. It's because of this, then this. So it's a logical progression. So when Paul says therefore, he's taking something before and he's moving it in and it's, he's laying the foundation for something that he's about to say. So when Paul says, therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's saying, because of X, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What is the variable in this equation? It's everything that happened from verse 27 all the way up until this point. He's saying, because you are citizens of the kingdom of God, because you are citizens of heaven, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I will beat this drum until the day that I die. Our identity is always established before the things that we do are told to us. So in the Bible, you're always going to see an identity statement before anybody starts talking about the things that we should do. So Paul, in verse 27, says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say what that looks like. He establishes the identity. Now, the identity does not start with just us being something. The identity always comes from who God is. So our identity always comes to us from God. And we can see this in verses 5 through 11 of chapter, 12, of, of chapter 2, where we can see that Christ himself, he humbled himself, form of a servant, he died on the cross so that we could have life. He died so that we could live. He died so that we could become citizens of heaven. He died so that we could become transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He died so that we could have the identity as a child of God instead of an orphan. He died so that we can have abundant life and life to the full. He died so that we could have hope. He died so that we could have joy. He died so that we could become more like him. Our sanctification and our growth always starts with God. It starts with who he is. It starts with what he's done. It starts with him. And he is the one that gives us the new identity by which we're able to do the things that Christ calls us to do. So we can see in the word therefore that because Christ will be exalted at the end of time and is currently seated at the right hand of God, because Christ humbled himself into the form of the servant and he died so that other people can live, we are now citizens of the gospel. Therefore, we must obey. Therefore, we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, let's look in verse 13, just in case you think that, you know, we're, that it, it ends with us. Oh, well, because of this, then we have to obey. Actually, Paul bookends this thing with God. He starts with God, and he ends the sentence in verse 13 with God again. We'll just read 12 through 13 all the way. Therefore, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is who? God. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So not only does our identity drive our sanctification, not only does God's work in us and through us start the sanctification process, the Christian growth process, God also 
finishes it. He also works in it. He also moves in it. He also ends it. So just in case we thought that, okay, well, God gave us this identity and now it's up to us to keep it, we can see that God himself works in us in order for us to accomplish the things that he calls us to do. So salvation and sanctification begin and end with God. God empowers us to say no to sin and to say yes to God. God empowers us to love our wives well. God empowers us to love our kids well, to love our husbands well, to love our coworkers well, to love our church members well. God empowers us to, to give generously. God empowers us to, to be able to be patient with those around us. God empowers us to, to not grumble and not complain like we're going to talk about in a minute. God empowers us to spend time with him, to pray, to, to spend time in his presence, to, to know his word. He empowers us to do all of those things. He is the one who works in us to become more like him. But not only does he empower us to do those things, not only does he work in us, I think that the back half of 13 actually is, a, is even more exciting than what we're even talking about. He says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Not only does God work in us, not only does God give us the power to execute on the things that he wants us to execute on, not only does he give us the power to do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons, God gives us the will. Not only does God give us the power to do it, God is the one who puts the desire in our heart to do it in the first place. So not only does God call us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, he gives us the desire to do it, and he gives us the power to finish it. Sanctification always begins and ends with God. So if you're feeling discouraged today that you're not doing a very good job working out your salvation, or you feel like you're not doing a very good job getting to where you want to go spiritually, we can take heart in the fact that God has promised to will and work in us so that we can become more like him. God's invested in this whole process. He wants us to become more like him. He wants us to be made in his image. We, he wants us to follow him well so that we can experience the joy that comes from knowing God. Sanctification begins and ends with God. And that is a very encouraging thing. That God himself, where he says, in, I mean, Paul says it in chapter six of verse, of cha or verse six of chapter one, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus, we can see in verse 28 that our salvation is from God. So we're not earning anything here. We're not gaining anything here. We're not working our way into God's good graces. We're not working our way to a spot where God finally likes us, finally wants to hang out with us because we've done all the right things or whatever. We have been saved by grace through faith, and God is going to empower that belief so that we can obey. He's going to do it. He's invested in that process. But it's not all rainbows and butterflies. It's not, kick, it's not kick back in your lazy boy and just wait for God to change you. Paul has a pretty uh, stark um, imperative here. He tells us to do something here. And this leads me to my second point, which is that sanctification is hard work, and it should be taken seriously. Sanctification is hard work, and it should be taken seriously. Seriously, and we can see this where Paul says, 
work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's an interesting phrase by Paul, who happens to be the champion of not being able to work for your own salvation. He spends some time, and obviously in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says God starts the work, God finishes the work. In chapter 1, verse 28, he says that salvation is coming from God. You can read the book of Romans and find out that it's not by works, that anybody can boast that they become saved. So Paul is not saying that we are earning any sort of salvation here. He's not saying that our works are what bring us into God's good graces. He's not saying that we have a new identity because we have done all of the right things and we have acted in all of the right ways and we have checked all of the right boxes. No, Paul is saying that because we are brand new people, we need to act like the people that we are. We are becoming who we already are in Christ Jesus, and that is hard work. It's hard work. It's hard work to prioritize the things of God over the things of our lives. I mean, I'm not kidding. There are thousands and thousands of things pulling on us for our affection, for our time, for our money, for all of our, for our mental space, all the time. People are, people and things are competing for our affections. It is hard work to say no to something good, to say yes to something greater. And that's part of what it looks like to work out our salvation. Paul views salvation in a really interesting way throughout the New Testament. And one of the ways that he sees salvation is he sees it in three sort of stages. He says that we have been saved, that we are currently being saved, and that we will be saved. And part of us being saved is us working that salvation out. It's us becoming who we already are. Because we're already redeemed, we're already restored, we've already been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, we've already been made a citizen of heaven, we've already have all the righteousness that we need found in God himself that he has given to us through the cross, we are already all of those things, we already have the inheritance that is stored up for us in heaven, we already have all of those things, but we are becoming the person that we already are through the course of of our lives. And that process of becoming who we already are happens through us making conscious decisions to follow Jesus every day. Because God values our decision making. He values what we do. Our decisions have consequences. And although God is sovereign and he is working all things together for good and all things according to the purpose of his will, God consistently uses decisions made by human beings to accomplish his will in the world. You can see it through the entire Bible. There are very few places in the Bible where God does something unilaterally and that doesn't involve somebody's decision-making processes. He's always using people to accomplish his purposes. How do, how, do people, how do people come to know the gospel? People tell them about the gospel. You can look at it in Romans chapter 10, where he says, how will they hear if nobody tells them? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? God is telling us to do things because the things that we do matter. They matter. We're not some, this, this is not some sort of thing where we just kind of let go and let God just lay back and wait for us to transform and change and God takes care of everything in the world. He uses us to take care of everything in the world. And Paul's encouraging us to enter into that as we work out our salvation. Now, the, the, the fear and trembling part is an interesting thing as well because what this is what Paul is communicating here is that this should be something that we take very seriously. 
So what Paul is saying is he's saying that we should not take our decisions to sin lightly. We should not take our decisions to prioritize other things above the things of God lightly. Like our obedience is not something that is an option, but it's something that we should take very seriously. Because the idea of fear and trembling is more of an is not so much an idea of, oh, I'm so scared of, that God's gonna you know, send some really horrible consequences my way if I do something that's wrong, or some sort of angry dad up there waiting for us to screw up. It's not that kind of fear and that kind of trembling, but rather it's, it, it's, it's a recognition of the otherness of God, about how serious it is that God is a holy God. He is separate from us. He is not like us, but he has decided to make us like him. So when we decide to follow Jesus and he empowers that decision, he gives us the will and he gives us the way to complete the work, we need to take that work seriously. And that's hard work and it's difficult. But the beauty of it is God is working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that brings me to my third point. Sanctification is for God's good pleasure. Sanctification brings God good pleasure. Now, I'm sure there are some um, of us that are feeling maybe a little bit of that weight of like, oh man, like I am kind of lazy and I kind of don't really do a lot of those things I should be doing. And I'm sure there's some anxiety that gets stirred up there um, when we hear about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. But I know that there are, that I know that there are probably some of us in the room, myself included, because this, this tends to be me, that when I'm, so when I'm going through my life and I'm asking God for help and I'm consistently running into these patterns of sin and I'm consistently going back to him and asking for forgiveness and repenting to him and asking him to transform me and to make me new and to make me better at following him, I tend to feel like God is annoyed at me in those moments, like, haven't we already had this conversation like 13 times this week? Like, when are you just going to stop doing those things? Like, that's how I feel sometimes. I feel like God is like, oh, not again. Like, I already, I'm, I'm giving you all the power that you need. Like, just do it. Like, that's how I'm feeling. But, the, but reading the back half of this verse this week, it really just blew my mind that this whole process of me becoming more like Jesus, the process of me being convicted of my sin, repenting of that sin, and consistently working hard and being empowered by God to change, to become new, to become different. That whole process is not annoying, but it actually is a process that God enjoys. God finds pleasure in our sanctification. He finds pleasure in us repenting of our sin. He finds pleasure in us approaching him and saying, God, I need you to help me. He finds pleasure in that. He enjoys that. He's not annoyed or frustrated. He's not disappointed or angry. But when we come to God after we sin and we say, God, I cannot do this on my own. I need you. He's not saying, this is so annoying. Why are you bothering me? He enjoys that conversation because God is invested in our sanctification. He's invested in our growth and he's more invested in it than we are. He enjoys the conversation where we rely on him to become more like him. And if we can see our interactions with God in the positive light of when I sin and repent, 
that it is a positive thing that I get to go to God and he gets to transform me and I get to have a relationship with him and that he enjoys that, it's going to be a game changer because my tendency is when I sin, when I get angry at my kids, when I get angry at Brooke, when I'm just so frustrated or so anxious or so whatever, my tendency is not to go to God right away. My tendency is to sort of wait it out and then come back to God later because I feel like I feel some shame or I feel some guilt or I feel like he doesn't want to talk to me or I feel like he's frustrated because I've made this mistake 13 times this week. But if I can view my relationship with God as one that's positive, as one that God enjoys as much as I do, I'm going to be more apt to go to him instead of away from him. When I sin, I'm going to be more apt to go to him confidently and ask him for help, knowing that he willingly gives it to us because he's a good father. Instead of running away from him and trying to fix it on my own and then going back to him when I feel like I'm clean enough. God enjoys changing us. He enjoys it. It brings him good pleasure to will and work in us. And that can be a hard thing for some of us to grasp. But at the end of the day, working out our salvation is difficult, but God is invested in our growth, and he finds joy in it. I know that there's many, there are many of us that feel shame when we sin, and that shame keeps us from going to God. We do not need to feel that shame. We need to know that when we sin, it's an opportunity for us to go to God and to know him better and to find the joy that comes through repentance. And we have to see God as a loving father who wants to bring us in, not an angry father that wants to push us away. Sanctification begins and ends with God. Sanctification is hard work and it should be taken seriously. Sanctification brings God pleasure. And then my next point is sanctification. Sanctification is for the sake of others as well. Sanctification is for the sake of others as well. Let's look at verses 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing or complaining. That's a statement right there. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So Paul goes on to give very specific instructions on how to work out our salvation. Like he goes from like, hey, Therefore, because you are all of these things, because you are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and Christ himself has died on the cross so that you can live, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God that works in you for his good pleasure. The next thing Paul says is he gives him like real, he gives some action items. He's not like, this isn't just theory. Let me just give you the first step. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing or complaining. Some of your translations may say complaining or arguing. It's really interesting that Paul sort of singles this out. It's just, I, don't, I just find it really funny. You know, it's like there are a lot of things that, you know, he could have started with as like part of our working out our sal- salvation process. But he chooses grumbling and complaining. Now, why? I think it's because 
we look in this entire arc of our section, Paul starts out by saying, we're citizens of the kingdom of God, so be united in one, one mind, be united in one heart, strive side by side with the faith of the gospel, have this mind to set in you that's the same as Christ Jesus, put others above yourself, humble yourself, put others' needs before your own. Paul is consistently talking about the corporate idea of the body of Christ, and he's saying, you, because of all of these things, you need to stop grumbling and complaining. Stop grumbling and complaining. Because the, fir- the quickest way to have disunity is to grumble and to complain. The, the best way to mess up a good thing is to whine about it. It's true. When my kids start whining, nobody is happy. When I go into work and people are whining and complaining and grumbling, it, just, it's, it does not help me want to do my job well. When whining and grumbling and complaining tend to be things that we, we gravitate towards when we don't have the long-term view of God working in us. But Paul most likely is calling back to Exodus where the Israelites were consistently doing what? They were grumbling and complaining. I mean, you remember, God rescues them from Egypt, takes them into the wilderness. They go, oh, this wilderness is so annoying. We want to go back. We're thirsty. We're going to die. So God says, okay, well, here's some water. And they're like, oh, okay, well, that's fine. We still want to go back. We're, we don't like this. So then God's like, okay, keep going. So they're like, we're hungry. We're going to die. So God says, okay, here's literally bread from heaven for you to eat. What do the Israelites do? Oh, we're so, we, this bread is so annoying. We want some meat. We don't want to eat this bread all the time. What are we, vegan? Like, we don't want to do this. So God says, fine, you can have some quail. And you know what their response to that is? Well, at least in Egypt we had spices to cook the quail in, in our pots. I, I, I'm not joking. Like, read the Exodus narrative. They are consistently grumbling and complaining about everything. These are the people that are supposed to be lights in the world to show that God is a good God who wants to bring all peoples to himself. Guess who wants to hang out with those people? Nobody. Nobody wants to go be like the Israelites because they're grumbling and complaining about what God is doing consistently. They are grumbling and they are complaining consistently. Part of our evangelism efforts, a part of us living the Christian life in a way that draws people to God and not away from God is not being a people that grumble and complain. I mean, we've all, we, we all have those people in our lives. We all go into those areas of our lives where go to work, somebody's whining. You go to the store, somebody's whining. Like, we all have friend groups. Everybody's got something to complain about. Well, the weather's bad. Oh, I can't stand Biden. Oh, the fuel prices. Oh, can you believe Donald Trump? Oh, can you believe this? Oh, my gosh, my mother-in-law does this. Oh, blah, 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 blah. Go on and go on and go on and go on and go on. You know what sets us apart from those people? not grumbling and complaining. And the reason we don't grumble and complain is because we have been given life and we've been given life to the full. Our mindset shifts when we become followers of Jesus. When we become followers of Jesus, we no longer look to the negatives in our lives and vocalize them, but rather we are able to look at the fact that we have an eternal hope and that 
changes our outlook. The things that we have to say are no longer negative, but they are positive. The things that we have to say are life-giving instead of soul-sucking. The things that we have to say, our mindset, our attitude is one of gratitude and one of rejoicing, not one of grumbling, complaining, or whining. And what this does, as we can see in verse 15, is that we are shining as lights in the world because of how we behave. We are not whiners, we are not grumblers, we are not complainers, because we have a citizenship that is different than the citizenship of those of the world. And that citizenship should shine brightly as a light that attracts those who do not know yet know Jesus. But if we are just like everybody else, we're just whining like everybody else, that does not give us the opportunity to be the light that we ought. And again, the beauty of all of this is it's predicated upon God giving us new identity and empowering us to live that identity. So I'm not just saying, oh, just go out there and stop saying bad things. Just keep your mouth shut. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that our hearts change. And when our hearts change, what we talk about, how we approach the world changes. And that brings me to my last point. Sanctification allows us to rejoice no matter what. Sanctification causes us to rejoice no matter what our circumstances are. We can see this in verses 17 and 18. 17 and 18, Paul says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So if we remember, Paul is in prison at this particular moment. Paul is Paul thinks he's going to die. Like, Paul's like, I'm on my way to the grave. Like, I'm, I'm not going to make it out of here. Paul's circumstances are not one of, like, joy. Like, he's literally in prison. And, I mean, prison conditions are not wonderful back in the first century. But what's Paul's response to his circumstance? He's glad. He's rejoicing. He's like, I may not make it out of here alive, but in that I rejoice? And he says to them, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The reason why Paul can rejoice in all of his circumstances, the reason why Paul can tell the people in Philippi to rejoice in all circumstances, to be glad, is because they are not primarily citizens of this world, but they are citizens of heaven. Their circumstances don't dictate their response. The larger picture, the long game, is what dictates their response. So Paul can be glad that he may not make it through this alive because he knows he's going to be able to be with God. The Philippians can be glad that Paul doesn't make it through this alive because Paul gets ultimately what he wanted at the end of the day, which is to be with Jesus. And we can rejoice in our circumstances, knowing that, our circumst- that, that all of our trials and all of our persecutions and all of the things that we go through produce endurance and endurance patience and patience hope, knowing that we will not be put to shame in the end because we have a hope that's greater than the circumstances around us. You notice that Paul is not grumbling or complaining about his circumstances? It's because he knows that his circumstances have no bearing on whether or not he is a citizen of heaven or not. And our call out of this 
is that we need to grasp hold of the citizenship that we have in heaven. We need to grab hold of this identity that we have as citizens of the kingdom of God. And we need to allow that to shape our worldview, to shape the way that we view the world, shape the way that we interact with things. So instead of things going poorly in our lives and us whining about them, things go poorly in our lives and we can rejoice knowing that this is an opportunity to become more like Jesus. And we can rejoice in knowing that these circumstances are not random, but instead they are curated by God himself for us to become more like him. And in us becoming more like him, guess what we're going to be? the most joyful people imaginable. So salvation and salvation, yes, and sanctification begin and end with God. Sanctification, it's hard work. And it needs to be taken seriously. But at the same time, sanctification, man, it brings God pleasure that we are becoming more like him. And our sanctification is not just for ourselves. It's not just for our own personal growth. It's not just so we can be better people and check all the right boxes and feel really good about ourselves. But instead, our sanctification ultimately pushes us to share the gospel with those who do not yet know him. It affects our behavior, which pulls people towards us so that we can share the life that we have. And at the end of the day, our sanctification allows us to rejoice in the circumstances that we are in instead of complaining about them. Our circumstances no longer dictate our response, but instead our citizenship does. So today, there are probably some of us that are working really, really hard right now and just feeling like we're failing, feeling like we just can't get there. Like, we're just leaning so hard on just doing the right thing. We're trying to say no to pornography, but we just can't. We're trying to say no to getting angry, but we just can't. We're trying to say no to, to all of the things that are temptations that are, that, are, that are at our door. And we're trying and we're trying and we're trying and we're trying and we just keep on failing. There are some of us here that are, that are like that. The encouragement today is that we are empowered by God to say no to sin. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to say yes to what God has for us. My encouragement today is if you're feeling like I'm just working so hard at trying to be a good Christian and I just can't do it, my encouragement is that we lean into our relationship with the Lord knowing that he is going to empower us. He's going to empower us to do the things that we ought to do, to be the thing that we ought to be to remind us of our identity, to allow us to live out of that identity. He is going to give us the power. He's the one working in us. But we have to ask him and lean into that relationship and ask him to give us the power to do what we need to do. Now, there are probably some of us in this room as well where we are really comfortable with allowing God to work in us. We're comfortable with God's sovereignty. We're comfortable with the fact that he's gonna, what he started, he's gonna finish. He called me, he's gonna keep me to the end. There are probably, there are many of us that feel really comfortable with that. But what that causes sometimes in us is it causes kind of a laziness. It causes us to stop working hard. It causes us to stop striving to prioritize the things of God over the things of this world. It's, it, it, it keeps us from working really, really hard to getting to where God wants us to be. My encouragement today, and this tends to be me, honestly, and the, and the next one, and the one before, all of them, is that God has promised to give us the will to work out our salvation. Some of us, we just don't feel like it. We don't see an urgency in it. We don't feel like it matters. 
but God has promised us to give us the will to work. He has promised us to give us the desire to please him. He's promised to give us the desire to become more like him. So for those of us who maybe aren't working hard enough, I think that the solution is to ask the Lord to give us the desire to work hard, give us the desire to do what is right, to give us the desire to read the word, to give us the desire to pray, to put structures in in place so that we prioritize those things over the things that are easily um, done. It's way easier to watch an hour and a half of Netflix than to read an hour and a half of Bible. It's just true. It's objectively true. But we need the Lord to give us the will to work and give us the ability to overcome the temptations that we have. And some of us, the temptations aren't like, I want to murder somebody. God, help me keep from murdering them. Most of our temptations are subtle. Do I do this good thing or do I do this better thing? Our tendency is to slide towards the path of least resistance. But, it, but God has promised us to give us the ability to do what he's called us to do and to be who we already are. And then lastly, I think there are probably some of us in here that, that we feel like when we approach God, he is annoyed with us, he's frustrated with us, he does not want to talk to us, he wants us to figure it out and then come back to him. This has been me most, most of my life, if I'm probably perfectly honest with all of you. Most of the time, I'm feeling like when I go to God, I feel like God is like rolling his eyes. Like, you're 32, we've gone through this a million times. Like, why are you still doing this? Why are you still asking me for help? Why are you still struggling with this thing? Why are you still doing this, that, and the other? Why do you, still, why do you keep on coming to me asking me for help? Like, you should, be, you should have this mastered by now. That's how I feel. And that's not a proper way to approach God. There's, there, are, there, are those of, there are people in this room, myself included, that need to see and need to know that God loves our growth and change and sanctification. He wants us to have those conversations with him. He wants us to repent of our sin. He wants us to ask him for help. He enjoys it. He doesn't even just want us to. He enjoys it. He enjoys it when I come to him and say, God, I cannot do this without you. God, I've screwed up again and I need you to forgive me and to help me change. He loves that interaction. And there are some of us in this room that need to see that as the truth. We need a mindset shift. We need to get to the point where we feel like God loves us and doesn't just tolerate us. And we can see the love that God has for us that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He laid down his life for us. He put us above him, himself, so that we might live. He doesn't tolerate us. He doesn't just sort of like, oh, well, I mean, I did die for them, so I guess I'm kind of obligated to like help them out. He cares for us. He loves us deeply. And we need to ask the Lord to show us how much he loves us so that we can run to him when we sin and not away from him. So we're gonna sing, we're gonna worship together now as we close. Let's just think through and pray through those things, especially as we go from here. Do we need to work harder? Do we need to lean on God's empowering work? Do we need to ask the Lord to create the will to work in us? Or do we just need to see, we need to ask God to help us see how much he loves us so that we can better love Let's pray. Lord, we love you, 
and we thank you for your great love for us. God, I pray that we would not walk away from here feeling condemned or frustrated or angry or, or whatever. But God, I pray that we would walk away from this place encouraged, knowing that you work in us, that you create the will to work in us, that you are the one who empowers our work and our growth and our sanctification. And God, that you enjoy it. You love us. And you want to spend time with us. And you want to spend time making us more like you. God, for those of us who need to work harder, I pray that you would give us some good steps to prioritize you. God, I pray for those of us who maybe are scared of you, I pray that you would show us your great love for us. And for those of us who are working so hard and just falling so short, help us lean on your everlasting arms. We love you, God. We thank you and we praise you and we ask these things in your beautiful name. Amen.